0: Michael, I may have done the wrong thing here. That's what I should have moved. Okay, I think I moved that over and that had been there. Okay, technology and John Jenshko. Not two words you hear too often in the same sentence. Inside your bulletin this morning is a sermon outline, and I'd like uh, everyone, if you would, to have one of those. If you didn't get one, Put up your hand, and Jim will get one to you, or Lydia, so that you can follow along. I think it'll be easier for you if you have this in front of you, because I'll ask you to reference it. And I will be speaking from First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, down through the first verse of chapter 11. So again, if you don't have one of these, put up your hand and they'll put it, they'll get it to you. The Apostle Paul writes, So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So far, then, the reading of God's Word. Speaking of technology, just a few weeks ago, I actually upgraded my operating system on my laptop computer. For about a year, Microsoft has been sending me a message every time I turn it on. Do you want to upgrade to Windows 10? You want to upgrade to Windows 10? And they kept asking me, asking me, and finally they wore me down. And I hit yes, and I I upgraded my operating system. And the idea behind doing that is they want to improve the way... My keyboard enters data, and they want to improve the way my display systems work and my interface with all the email. The operating system is responsible for connecting all the parts in what my computer does. So if you have a Mac, uh, uh, an Apple, you use Mac OS. If you have a PC, you use Windows. I upgraded my operating system. Now, about a month ago, I told you that we all have in our souls a relational operating system. That is the way that we fulfill the commands of God, to love God and to love our neighbors. Everybody has a relational OS. And this summer we've decided we're going to have studies so that we can upgrade our OS together as a church family. Does that make sense to you? We all have this system that we learn from our parents, from the guys in the locker room, from the other kids we grew up with, and well, today we want to sharpen and see how the Bible is, is comprehensively shaping the way we should relate to each other. And in your in your sermon outline, under point number one is a little diagram I've, I'm showing you for the first time. It's not original with me. I get this from my friend Ken Sandy. And, and what we have learned together is that God is a relational God. We are in His image, relational people. And the three, there are three components. There are three components to your relational OS. What are they? God self, and others. And within each component, there are two dynamics involved. They are awareness and engagement. Awareness, what do I know about God, myself, and you? And how do I manage, how am I engaged with God, myself, and you? Aware and engaged, with God, self, and others. And it's like a wheel. You know I love wheels. And it's like a wheel. And you can actually start anywhere, sometimes in a relationship that's fractured or struggling, and you can, you can jump right in on the wheel, but you're always moving through. It's not just one time or another time. But we grow in all three of these um, dynamics all through our lives together. Next week... I'm going to take apart the God dynamic, and we're going to go deep in it. How your relationship with God is going to affect everything. The week after that, we're going to dig into self. We're going to dig deep into what it means to be self-aware and self-engaged. And then the Sunday after that, we're going to think deeply about taking those steps to engage and be aware of and engage in the lives of the people in our families, marriages, and relationships around us. So we're, we're just really now gearing up, and this diagram, I want you to get it today, and then don't miss the next three weeks as we pull it all together and go deep. This is very important for those of you who are married. This is especially important in marriage to have what's called the relational wisdom, the secular psychologist. They call it emotional intelligence. But the Bible speaks of the relational wisdom, husbands to know how to love your wives, wives to know how to love your husband, and parents, many of your children, they aspire to be married someday. Maybe you're single here today, and you want to be married. Well, what kind of husband are you going to pursue? What kind of wife are you going to pursue? You want for your children, you want for yourself to find someone who has high relational wisdom, not someone, not a little pygmy in terms of knowing how to relate to others, but they are strong in all three of these areas. That's what you want, and that's what you want to be, even more importantly, what you want to be in your marriage. So, um, let's jump right in and rotate um, about... 30 degrees to the right side of the wheel, and this is point number two. If point one is we, it's all 360, now let's jump into that self-awareness. Before we in two weeks go deep into that, uh, I just want you to say, how am I feeling? How am I acting? That's what it means to be self-aware. I gave you a definition, actually. Uh, Ken Sandy wrote it, he he says, Self-awareness is your capacity to accurately discern your own emotions, interests, values, strengths, and weaknesses. Can you see yourself? Do you know yourself in all of these areas? Paul, in our passage, it's really interesting. He says he doesn't want to be offensive. Let's look look at that verse just above in in part one. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, "'So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, "'do it all to the glory of God.'" Now, what's in parenthesis, those are my words. We never wanna add to the word of God, but but in parenthesis, I'm just making an observation. Look at that. It says, "'Do all to the glory of God.'" He is God-aware. Then he says, "'Give no offense.'" And what he's saying here is he's being self-aware. Is there a tendency in me to be offensive to other people? To Jews or Greeks, he's other aware. They're they're different. I have to be aware of them. And then he says, or to the church of God. Hey, these people seated around you, do you know how to understand what's going on in their lives? That's other aware. Then he writes, just as I try, he's self-engaged, to please everyone. He's other engaged in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage. That's, he's self engaged. I, I, I guess I have to put myself second. But that of the many. He's other engaged. That they may be saved. Then he says be imitators of me. He's actually self aware of the things God is working in his life. As I am an imitator of Christ. He's God engaged. Listen, my friends, you see, these principles are not something I'm imposing on the Scripture. They are pulsing all through the Bible, and in unique passages like this, all six of those dynamics are are at work right in there. Isn't that interesting? And now we're at that right side of the wheel, and we want to be self-aware. How do you do that? How do you ask, what's going on inside me? Some of us aren't very good at self-awareness, what, and, and I'm at the front of the line. So what I use often is Psalm 139. Look at that beautiful prayer in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. This is a prayer you can use. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And what he's doing is he's actually inviting God to help him take inventory of his own soul. If you own a business, you know it's important to take inventory of of what you have. And Paul is saying here, help me to take inventory of my own soul. What's going on? inside of me biblical self-awareness has a very constructive purpose to it i'm not talking about just being totally self-fixated but listen the bible is telling us pay attention to what's going on inside your soul because there may be offensive ways in you there may be troubling ways in you there are emotions and two weeks ago we saw god gave us emotions Emotions are not bad. Emotions are good. You know, Buddhism, Buddhism talks about sort of killing, putting to death, and having no, uh, leveling out, having no uh, emotions, But, but Christianity teaches that we are alive and we are passionate people. Emotions are good, but sometimes, because we're fallen, sinful creatures, our emotions get corrupted and they hijack our rational brain. And then we do things, we say things that are hurtful. We, we dishonor God and we injure our spouse or our children or our parents or the other kids in school. And, and, and the Bible is full of examples of getting hijacked, right? What the, the first one in the Bible, in Cain and Abel, the very first children of Adam and Eve... And Cain gets jealous, then he gets angry, and then he punishes his brother and murders him. He got hijacked by his emotions, his self-righteousness. Remember Rachel? We've talked about Rachel. That was the, the, the woman who, she got so anxious, she was very anxious and fearful, she stole her father's idols. And, and you know what she did? By, she practically exploded the whole family do you ever have someone in your extended family, they just practically ruin the whole family? Rachel tears it all up. And, 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 and boy, they have to do some quick fixing there because her, her emotions hijacked her good sense. She was very foolish. And Peter, when he denied Christ, how in the world could the beloved apostle Peter have this silly little servant girl come up and go, boo, boo. And Peter gets all scared and he says, I didn't know Jesus, I don't know him, and he curses and denies Christ, his master that he loved. What happened? Is he, he just got hijacked inside by his sinful soul and his emotions, he got carried away. So, we have to be aware of ourselves. And this happens. And we go to dark places, we do deep in our souls. We do find ourselves where critical thoughts become bitter thoughts of others. We do come in our souls where anxiety becomes fear and fear becomes paranoia and paralysis. We do find in our souls where anger becomes rage and the slow burn builds and builds, and the pressure cooker is building, and you're unaware of it. I remember seeing a film clip, a movie, Ruth Witherspoon was in it. She was running for class president, and this clip in the movie was all about how she was not angry at the other kid who was running for class president. And in the, in the clip, she, 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 you hear the voice over her brain, and she's saying, of course it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. But then they show her yelling at him and shows her manipulating and getting furious. And at the end, her face is filled with fury as she's riding away on the bus. And the voiceover is saying, of course, this doesn't bother me a bit. And that could be some of us so out of touch with the boiling cauldrons in our emotions. And the Bible invites you and me to be self-aware. And then we move a little, one notch further. The Bible then calls us to manage our thoughts and our emotions. It's called self engagement. And self engagement is simply, you see the definition there, it's your capacity to master your thoughts and your words and your actions so that they actually please God and advance His purposes. Paul, in our passage, he does not want to be offensive. Did you catch that? He actually wants to be uh, self-aware in such a way and engage in managing himself so that he becomes a blessing of others. And in those moments, I don't think I'm the only person ever to say this, in those moments when you blow it and you say, I couldn't help myself. It's just the way I am. Anybody else ever thought that or said that, it's right at that moment, my friend, when God is inviting you to just say, I blew it. And Lord, search me and show me and get to work inside of me with your gospel so that next time maybe I won't blow it because you will blow it. Moms and dads, moms and dads, some of you it's so interesting to see some of you are some of you expect your children to be perfect. You expect them to be perfect and you are actually shocked when they are not. <gasps> moms and dads, your children are not perfect. Neither are their parents. So let's not kid ourselves. What we need to do is begin with self-awareness and teach our children to be self-aware so that when their imperfections, their sinful tendencies erupt, we then can help reflect back to them and show them they can see it. That's what good parenting does. Good parenting doesn't pretend like your kids are perfect. Good parenting is helping them come to see what's going on inside their hearts, to do that self-discovery, and then to teach them how to manage and engage themselves. And now, how do you do that? What I have to say is when I fail to love someone, what I have to say is, okay, God, what does this say about me? And you remember that it's at that point I need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ to myself. And the good news first is bad news. Bad news comes before the good news. Bad news, I'm a sinner. I'm weak. I, I tend to be selfish. I tend to be proud. I tend to be self-indulgent. I'm not surprised that those impulses rise up in the old man out of my flesh but there's good news. There's good news. God, you love me. How do I know you love me? You love me. You love me because I have the cross. I have that place, that evidence that Jesus loved me when I was his enemy and he died in my place, taking the wrath I deserve. Lord, what else could that be but love? How do you know that God loves you? I didn't, I, You have a thin waist. You have a lot of money in the bank. You drive a nice car. How do you know that God loves you? None of those things are ultimate proof. How do you know? You know because of the cross of your Savior who hung there and His blood covered all your sins and your name was written on His hands. He loved you and He gave Himself up for you. That's how you know. And so you begin... By preaching the gospel. Bad news, but also the good news to yourself. And, and um, 1 John 4.19 is our text for this. We love because He first loved us. It starts there. I have a friend. He was a missionary to Korea. His name is Gene List. He went to Korea. He was a dentist. He was a missionary for a long time. When he came back, I took him to lunch. I said, what did you learn in Korea, Dr. List? Here's what he said. I learned a poem. He said, I wrote a poem, silly little poem. We're going to learn it together now. The older I get, the more I see. I need to preach the gospel to me. It's a nice little rhyme. Listen to it again. The older I get, the more I see I need to preach the gospel to me. And as he talked about it, he said there's the bad news of the gospel and the good news. And how I need to know when I discover my own weaknesses and sins that the Lord loves me and gave, his self, gave himself for me. That needs to be an anchor for the soul. And your children need to know how much the Lord loves them, your primary duty, dad and mom, is to teach your children how much the Lord loves you and gave himself for you. And then Romans 5, remember just a few months ago we camped out in the fifth chapter of Romans, and it says in Romans 5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame because, I love this image, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Self-awareness is not only self-discovery, but it is a knowledge that God's love has first been poured into you. And you need to know it comes into you before it goes through you. You know, Pastor John here does not have that many strings on his guitar. I am not the sharpest tack in the box. So I say a lot of phrases over and over again. And this, one is, and this one, church, this is, our, this is one of our key phrases. The love of God comes to you and then moves through you. Okay? That's the order. That's the order in which it comes. And you need to be someone deeply aware and knowing the sweet love of God for you in your soul. And then, as it's poured in, it will pour through you. Oh, preacher, I wish that love would flow through me, but for that to happen, my selfishness has to die. My pride has to die. My self-centeredness has to die. It's so hard, and it is hard. But Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you not only come and live, you have to come and die. Look at that passage in Matthew sixteen twenty four. It's right there at the bottom of the front page. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And in this self-engagement process, there has to be death. There has to be death. You want to scream at your children? You don't want to scream at your children. So you have to die. You want to obey your parents, but you don't want to obey your parents. But what do you have to do? You have to die in your soul to your own selfish impulse and say, God, you told me to honor my mother and my father. I'm going to do that today. You know those words I've used to slice up my wife? That I've used to nag and put down my husband? Those words, God, you don't want them anymore. But they feel so good. I have to die. I have to die to myself. And I'll do it because you love me. And you love them. And then you become humble. You rotate a little further on the wheel, now that you're self-aware. Point number three, turn over your outline. And you start thinking about the other person. And you even start asking, how are other people feeling and how am I impacting them? And in our passage, it's very interesting, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul realizes he actually engages Jews differently than he engages Greeks, and then he has to engage the church, his brothers and sisters in the church, and and it's as though he's aware of the different ways that that they live and they think, and he's going to suit himself to them. What do the psychologists call that? They call it empathy, they call it empathy, the ability to feel with other people. In their situation as they are. Paul is tuned in. He's actually tuned into their spiritual needs. He says so they may be saved. But but the the, the, the picture there is he's tuned into the unique way he needs to speak to Jews and different to the Greeks, different to the people in the body of Christ. Social Scholars, psychologists, psychiatrists, you know what they call this, other awareness and other management? They call this social competence. There's a nice term. Social competence. And I guess if you have a good therapist or a good counselor, they they, they might teach you a few tricks to become more socially competent in your relationship. And that's good. I, I affirm that as much as you can. This is good. But, you know, psychology has gotten all excited in about the past two decades about this new idea of emotional intelligence. You know, there was IQ, and then there's EQ, and, and, and you can actually measure a person's emotional intelligence, and, 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 and studies show that, that when your kids learn how to be self-aware and other-aware, they're the ones who will become the captain of the swimming team or the captain of the football team or get the part in the play or, or, or get accepted into this college or that school. It's not IQ that gets you the promotion, the psychologists say. They say it's EQ. Well, guess what, friends? The Bible has been teaching this for centuries, that we are to be other aware and other engaged. And our Lord Jesus, in the premier teaching on this, tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Does anyone know the parable of the Good Samaritan? It's astounding. Look at Luke 10 with me right in there. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him "...and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now he asks the old guy, the young man. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The man answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go. And do likewise. And this is just about the greatest single teaching on other awareness and other engagement that I've ever read anywhere. No no popular book has ever explained it as well as Jesus did. We are to be aware of what other people are going through. It says here, he saw him. And then we are actually to engage them. The, 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 the Levite, the minister, the priest, the religious guy, he saw him, and then what did he do? No, I'm going down this way. He wouldn't engage. Same with the Levite. But the hated Samaritan, it says of him, he was filled with compassion. Isn't that beautiful? His heart is moved. He is now other aware. He's moved with compassion and he becomes engaged and he moves us to other engagement. And this we're going to see next week as we talk about God engagement. That will be beautiful. And for those of you who are young in your journey with God, this is going to, it's going to be so sweet next week, I pray for you. The week after that, we're going to talk about other engagement and we're going to find that's actually the hardest part of this whole circle. That's why Paul puts it in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, this astounding passage. Let me tell you why it's so hard. Paul says, look at the verse, Philippians 2, 3 and 4. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And I read that, and I say... This is the life of Jesus. And he's talking about having the mind of Jesus in you. And that's just not the way I am in my flesh, my sinful flesh. Let me, let me give you the John Yenchko translation of Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Listen to it. Do everything out of selfishness and be very conceited. Hmm. Consider yourself More important than everyone else, because you clearly are. And only look out for yourself. Look out for number one, because as the old man said, nobody else is going to look out for you. You've got to look out for number one. And don't worry about others. They'll take care of themselves. That's a bad translation of that passage, isn't it? Is that how we should read it? And so have the mind of Christ given to you in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. What else will free you up to be a servant of others? Jesus says in Mark ten forty three, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be a servant. What He's calling us to do in, in social engagement, other engagement, is to love. It's to love other people. My wife is a person who loves other people well. She's always thinking, what what do they need? How can I be a blessing? She writes birthday cards to people all the time. She's always asking, "What, what what would help that person in what they're going through right now, you see? Do we get to the place where the life, the mind of Christ is inside of us and we're thinking ahead to help them? Uh, you know, I was, uh, this is a strange application, but, but I was thinking this week about how to be other engaged for other people and, and it struck me, some of us never think ahead. You know, Nina thinks ahead to write birthday cards, but, but you think ahead to what it will be like after you are dead and gone. After you die, what, what blessing to others will you be? And I, I've come across people, uh, partly I'm thinking Nina works in the life insurance industry. I'm not selling life insurance. But people who don't have any life insurance, and they've never written a will. Now, you want to ensure that others in your family are frustrated and, and struggling? When you croak, make sure you don't have any life insurance and make sure you don't write a will so that your children can all squabble and fight and try and figure out how to f- do what's right uh, after you. You've got to be other aware. In near term, long term, and very long term. Come on, people, wake up. You're not the only person alive on the planet. And here I have to speak to teenagers. Because my friends who are scholars of, uh, my neurologist friends in the church, they're quick to remind me that teenagers, uh, inside teenagers' brains, the limbic system is slow to form. That's the part of the brain that thinks about consequences and has awareness of other people. And apparently, that's very late in forming. And so moms and dads, don't be surprised when your young people are clueless to the fact that there are other human beings alive on this planet. You know, they just, they're, they're, they tend to be oblivious. I'm the only person alive and I can play my music as loud as I want. I can say any words that I need to say. And, and well, moms and dads, don't be surprised. Instead, what you're going to do is you're going to be teaching biblical, relational, other awareness to your children so that they learn. Okay? That's your job. That's your duty. And you have to model it for them. Am I making sense here? This, it goes from other awareness to other engagement. And we love And I become compassionate where I used to be insensitive. And that leads to the top of the wheel, point number four. I'm not only self-aware, I'm not only other-aware, but I become God-aware. Do you see it there? Relationship 360. And I ask the question, God, where are you at work in me? Because you see, secular therapists, secular counselors... They can teach you a few tricks, and that's good. They can teach you a few tricks to become a little more aware of yourself and aware of other people. But they miss the most important component of all, and that's God, your creator, the one who made you, the one who redeems you, the one who loves you, and the one who changes you. What is God awareness? I gave you the definition it's your capacity to interpret your life in the light of god's character and his promises and his power and one more time if if we're to love first john 4:19 we love how does that phrase end do you know we love because he first loved us And that is the anchor for your soul. That is the power source for your life of love to others. You are. You are reciting the poem that Gene List taught me to yourself. The older I get, the more I see. I need to preach the gospel to me. And I am loved first, loved by Him, and that becomes the anchor for my soul. And I engage my God. Appreciate the blessings in your life. And thank Him for them. You know, I have an early childhood memory. I don't have too many early childhood memories. But when I was six years old, I came home from first grade one day. And my mother was sitting by herself in the living room. And she gathered my twin sister Susan and me onto her lap. And she said, your daddy is very sick He had what's called a heart attack today, and he's in the hospital. And my sister said, what are we going to do? And my mother said, we're going to count our blessings. And she rocked us on her lap. She said, we're going to count our blessings, and we're going to thank God for what he's given us, and we'll get through this a pretty good childhood memory isn't it and she didn't know a lot of scripture frankly but she knew proverbs 3 5 and 6 i put it in your program under god engagement it says trust in the lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him god engagement and he will make straight your paths god engagement If you're young in your own spiritual journey, you are in for such a treat as you learn how to engage God daily, hourly in your life. I'm so excited for you. Those of us who've been Christians for long periods of time, has that become old? It should be the most thrilling thing in the world to be God-aware, God-engaged. And if you're new to this, It's just going to be so sweet as you learn how his love comes to you and through you. So I, as technologically challenged as I am, I upgraded my laptop to Windows 10. I upgraded my computer's operating system. But that's puny compared to upgrading with you this summer, our relational operating system. It's 360. It's all of these components, God, self, and others, aware and engaged every step of the way. This is the way of love, 1 Corinthians 13, that we read earlier in this passage, earlier in this service. It says love is the greatest gift of God. We want to clothe ourselves this summer, don't we, in his love and let it pulse through our lives. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, I'm here for an upgrade. And I need an upgrade, Lord. I need you to take my selfish heart, my proud heart, my um, sensual heart, and I invite you to make me new. I don't want there to be an offensive way in me. So I pray, search me, O God. Each of us, we pray in unison, search me, O God. Know our hearts. Try us. Show us our anxious thoughts. And then as our good shepherd, as the one who died and rose again and who has become our master, lead us in the way everlasting, we pray. In these next three weeks, Lord, we invite you to go deep in us. We invite you to show us yourself in your magnificent love. We invite you to expose in us who we are. Our strengths, our many strengths, our weaknesses. And then show us how to engage and master our thoughts and actions for your glory with a purpose. And the purpose would be that we would love and engage others for their blessing and for your glory. Oh, Jesus, may we be like that good Samaritan. For your glory, teach us to love. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. So this hymn comes right out of 1 Corinthians 13. The, the tune is an old Appalachian folk song. Some of you may know it. It's, an, it's a great American tune. And we put First Corinthians 13 connected to it. And it's a prayer asking God uh, to shape in us a heart of love. Let's stand together. So this is a declaration you're going to make to each other, to your own heart. I invite you to sing and believe as you pray this song and encourage your heart today. He's going to make us new, you know. He's going to make us new.